the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking today with author Chris Smith. He has co-authored with John Patterson a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And uh, this reaches into so many aspects of our faith, of the sustainability of same, not just our faith, but also local congregations, um, the body of Christ. And, you know, I guess in a day and an age, as we've been suggesting, Chris, where we have seen the emphasizing of um, uh, quantity over quality, this has really been uh, almost disastrous at certain levels to every aspect of, of faith within Western Christianity, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is really, really broadly reaching. And I mean, and honestly, it's part of the reason that I mean, one of the things that we kind of have experienced ourselves and have seen elsewhere um, is simply that uh, we tend to compartmentalize our faith. Uh, that our faith has become more and more uh, not pertinent to the rest of our life. What we do on Sunday is kind of separate—a separate thing from what goes on. Uh, in our in our home or in, at our office place, um, whatever that may be, um, and, and we we don't think that that's wh- what uh, we have been called into. I mean, we think that God is reconciling all things in Christ, uh, and that that the wisdom of the gospel is is pertinent um, to our to our family life, to our work life, and then part of the problem is that we've kind of uh, kind of fragmented home from work, from church, from. Uh, from maybe other social activities or whatever, but um, and and those spheres of our lives don't uh, interact with each other very much. Um, and I mean, part of what we're encouraging as we slow down is to to allow God to to heal some of those uh, fragmentations and find ways for for our lives not to be uh, quite so fractured. And that fracture, that fragmentation, seems to be clearly an outgrowth of the emphasis on quantity over quality. I mean, let's face it, if we're left with a choice of either going deeper or going quicker, um, culture today has sort of um, programmed us. We have been uh, uh, almost like Pavlov's dog, trained to respond to the quicker, not realizing how much we're missing in the going deeper. I mean, is it any wonder that we compartment then, and we relegate God to a brief hour-long experience on Sunday mornings, and maybe for uh, you know a half hour or so uh, Wednesdays, if if He's that fortunate, because we don't see the value in the integration of our relationship with the Lord in every aspect of our life, in every day of our life. Because let's face it, we've never perhaps ever seen the what that means to to be modeled in front of us. Sure, no, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, part of the part of the reason for that again is the the advertising culture uh, that we're in the midst of that that always uh, encourages encourages us to seek more, more, more. We need we need a new car, we need a new house, we need uh, a vacation, uh, whatever 
whatever uh, the advertisers are selling. Um, but but, but the kind of the collective effect of that is always encouraging us to to desire more, more, more. And what we need, I think, is is a transformation of our desires, um, uh, a transformation to 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 not desire more, but to desire to. To, to go deeper in the, the relationships that, that we already have. Well, and doesn't it become a vicious cycle, too? Because the more and more and more that takes us to a more shallower degree, it's sort of the, the quick high, the quick fix um, in life at so many levels, becomes terribly unfulfilling, I would suspect, after yeah. a while. And so then you're, you're motivated to go after more because at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to, to obtain something that, that is not a product of the, the faster, the quicker, the more, but of the slow and the deliberate and the deep. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that we focus on in a chapter later in the book is the, the practice of gratitude, of being thankful. And I think that's, that's one of the, the ways that God has provided for us to kind of resist uh, this or to, to, um, to start to put us on the journey toward healing and, and being transformed out of this culture that always wants more and more and more to to learn to be grateful for for the things that uh, that God has provided for us, uh, for the relationships that God has provided for us, and and the the resources that God has provided us with, uh, both as individuals and as congregations, um, and and I think if we the the greater uh, the we learn to practice thankfulness, gratitude, um, I think that we'll start to to see some see some transformation. It really comes down to the sense of being grateful, which causes you to pause and look at all that is around you. What's the old phrase about stopping to smell the roses? Oh, yeah. And we're, we're rushing down the street and along the way. Uh, we don't have time to capture the sights nor the fragrance because we're just too busy thinking about uh, what we're doing next, what we're doing tomorrow, what we're doing in 20 minutes. Um, I, I guess the big question is, since that sort of manic approach to life is so inbred in so many of us, I mean, I would wonder, even as we're talking right now, and there are people that are listening to our conversation on the drive home who, even though they recognize the danger and the illegality of browsing text messages, are doing it as we speak because they just can't simply can't wait to see what that text message might say. How how do we get off of this roller coaster ride to pause long enough to say we need to do some serious introspection here about our priorities and where we give time? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean just I mean just the example that you gave of of checking test text messages while you're driving. I mean, that's a that's a potential uh, that has the potential of death for for you and and someone and others around you. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the Bible, I mean, kind of talks about uh, the connection between uh, the way of sin and death. And, and 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 I think that that's I mean part of the consequences of of living too fast um, is I mean is ultimately uh, death. Um, and, and maybe uh, it's not always going to happen. Hopefully, it won't always happen. But but there's always that potential there uh, when we're trying to do too much and not being attentive uh, to what's going on around us. Particularly in a culture where we like ours today, where we use heavy machinery like cars and and so forth. And I mean, there's the risk. The risk is 
significantly well, there's also, I think, a degree of risk, as I use that as an example from a spiritual standpoint, because as you talk about in the book Slow Church, this culture of unreflective speed also means that we might be inclined to just kind of, at the surface, buy into any whim, any uh, doctrine that comes our way because it sounds okay, or yeah, I've read a little bit of scripture, that seems to be in harmony, and so we don't take the time to research, we're, we're not fruit inspectors, we don't tr- test the spirits to see if they are of God. There, there are so many aspects of what we are warned to do in a slow, thoughtful, deliberate fashion from a spiritual growth standpoint, from a relation with Christ standpoint, that is it any wonder that we have not only just sloppy religion, sloppy relationships, but then uh, so often so many within the church today are just pulled to and fro at any pardon me, any whim of, of false teaching because it's a culture of unreflective speed. Sure. I mean, you go into a Christian bookstore, and then that's, that sort of sloppiness is uh, is reflected. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not going to name any particular names, uh, but but that sort of kind of. Uh, I mean, everything from prosperity gospel to uh, uh, self help sorts of stuff. I mean, it's all there, and it's all it's all really not that reflective. Um, it's just kind of a, a quick fix of what will make us feel good. If you've just tuned into our conversation, we're visiting today with Chris Smith, co-author of Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. We'll talk a bit about what this means, how we can slow down the pace, and what the benefits can be, not only in terms of our own um, family well-being and and mental health, but ultimately for spiritual well-being and the well-being of our communities. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're talking about slow church today, not just the book, but the entire notion. This is the the polar opposite of this uh, fast approach that we've taken to rapid growth that certainly does a lot in terms of of sort of the quick um, flash in the pan, uh, brilliant moment uh, of success. But then, of course, leaves many questions pertaining to the sustainability of not just one's faith, but frankly, of the community of the body of believers. And as we're learning from our guest today, co-author Chris Smith, um, quite frankly, this this rapid, fast sort of the uh, the franchise approach to Christianity doesn't do a lot in terms of um, spiritual depth of individuals, let alone the sustainability of the church, and maybe therein lies the problem, that we're learning that the, the rapid results today are, in fact, at the expense of long-term sustainability. Yes, definitely, Craig. I mean, we see that, like you were saying earlier, that church plants uh, tend to have a lifespan of maybe a couple years. And also, I think part of the issue, questions of sustainability, um, one of the questions that doesn't get looked at so much uh, is, is the ways in which uh, churches move uh, from one neighborhood uh, to another um, and what the what the impact might be of that sort of tr- uh, transition uh, on the neighborhoods um, that are left. I mean, I live in an urban neighborhood in, here in Indianapolis, and we've kind of seen the effects, the sort of vacuum that's left uh, when a church uh, or any other institution of business, uh, but but especially in this case in churches, um, when they move out of a neighborhood, um, and uh, and it, it can be it can be. Uh, pretty powerful, and it's something that churches don't think about a lot, about uh, what what has happened uh, in the places that they leave behind. Mm. 
So that loss of commitment to a neighborhood, and oftentimes there's a disaster left behind because then what might have been uh, the only beacon of hope in a particular community, and this certainly has been very true in a lot of inner cities, um, sure. it completely uh, collapses, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It was, it's interesting. Our church, the church I'm part of, Anglo Christian Church here in, Indiana, in the near, urban near east side of Indianapolis, uh, we're 118 years old, uh, but we've basically been in the same place uh, for for all of that history. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, at kind of a low point in the size of our congregation, the history of our congregation, uh, we ha- were faced with the decision, do we stay in this neighborhood or do we move out uh, to the suburbs where a lot of our members are? And the leaders of the church decided at that point that it was very important for us to stay. And basically for the last 25 years or so since that decision, we've been on a journey of trying to, to understand what it means for us to be a church in this place since we made a very intentional decision to stay here. A lot of times churches will move because they feel overwhelmed by many of the problems that are facing a neighborhood and, quite frankly, maybe feel ill-equipped to be able to ascertain what those problems are and to best address them. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what we've seen in the recent passing of Robin Williams, who is, um, because of his connection to the San Francisco Bay Area, has been sure. quite a, an ongoing topic here of the last couple of weeks. Uh, some folks might have seen um, comments made uh, the other night by David Letterman, um, who uh, knew Robin early on in his career, and uh, Mr. Williams had been a guest on the Letterman show apparently about 50 times down through uh, the the years, and at the end of his very emotional, moving tribute to him, uh, had made a remark about well, if he'd only knew about how much pain Robin was in, and it dawns on me that we in the church maybe are guilty often of the same thing, that we are too busy and moving too fast to notice when others around us are hurting, the very ones that God would call upon us to bring healing to or hope to or his gospel to. And maybe, you know, what uh, what was remarked by David Letterman last night regarding Robin Williams is indicative of a place where a lot of us in the church are at today. We're just moving too fast to notice those around us that are really hurting. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I think you're, you're definitely hitting on something there, Craig. Um, that, I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to us is that, I mean, you just look at, you talk, we talked about earlier, a little bit earlier about the franchising uh, aspect of it, and you look at a McDonald's or you look at a Starbucks or a Home Depot or whatever, and those, are, those sorts of institutions look pretty much the same whether you're in San Francisco or San Antonio or wherever else. Um, and I think that a lot of times uh, churches can be that way. They can look and feel pretty much the same wherever wherever they are. And, they, and churches have kind of become almost um, uh, unattentive to uh, to the places uh, where they exist. Um, and again, that's part of the, the sort of fragmentation. Uh, churches have come to see themselves as kind of part of spiritual life, uh, not necessarily engaged in the life of the communities in which they exist. Um, and I, I think that that's, I think it's in that sort of engagement with the communities where we exist, where the, the wisdom of the gospel is, uh, and the, the call to, to be peacemakers and all those other sorts of things that, that we're called to in Christ. Uh, those, that's where that witness is borne out, uh, in, in engagement with, with our neighbors. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that, that we, there are many ways that we've become unaware of the the pain and suffering around us. 
And, you know, even closer to home, I mean, again, that, that rush means that there's a risk of well-being to family and our own mental health, our own spiritual well-being, because we're not taking the time uh, to go deep enough because uh, we're just not programmed that way. Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that I don't, I don't want to overstep here, but, but it's interesting to me that there's a correlation uh, between our continuing to move faster and faster and, and the rise in uh, mental illness, for instance. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that they're connected, but it's interesting that, uh, that they seem to uh, follow very similar uh, curves. Um, is a lot of this also tied into not just a desire to do things faster and more instantaneous, but also uh, coupled with this indicative of a, a lack of maturity that is uh, m- maybe as a as a watchword, uh, tremendously impatient, and a culture where on an increasing basis we wish to avoid not only work but any pain. I mean, it used to be you know a, a good hard day's worth of labor mm-hmm. where you came home with tired muscles and and completely beat. That was you had a sense of satisfaction and reward about that. And today, it's almost as if that has shunned. And so if we're not willing to, to exercise our physical muscles and experience a little bit of you know stretching pain in the experience, um, I wonder if that's indicative of, of the same thing when it comes to not willing, being willing to, spirit, to exercise our spiritual muscles, that we're afraid of avoiding pain in any aspect of life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's one of the things that we talk about in the book, that, I mean, the way of Jesus... Uh, is the the way of compassion. I mean, just the incarnation itself of Jesus coming to earth uh, was an act of compassion. Jesus entered into all the pain and suffering, and the joys, of course, too, but but the pain and suffering of the human experience. And that's what we're called to do uh, with one another in our church congregations and with our neighbors. And I think that what we're seeing, I talked a little bit before about kind of the history of industrialization and how we've become more and more uh, impatient and have more greater and greater expectations for speed. But one of the other effects of it is, like you were saying, that it, it conditions us to, to want to avoid work and suffering. We look at the rise of the, in the mid-20th century, the rise of the quote-unquote labor-saving device. Uh, and that's, a wonder, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that we should not use any sort of electrical gadget or whatever. Uh, but, but we do need to be aware of what, what the cost of that is and what, if we're saving labor, to what end are we saving labor? Um, and, and the effect of that, I believe, is exactly what you were describing, that we, it, we are having greater and greater difficulty entering into the, the pains and sufferings of others because we've been conditioned to avoid pain and suffering at all costs. And, of course, the irony is that pain and suffering also translates into notions of persecution. Um, and, you know, somehow the notion that we as the church in America are uniquely um, given a pass on the idea of pain and suffering or persecution, when the Scripture, of course, doesn't say that at all. And um, there is a dynamic that speaks quite heavily to uh, that lack of being willing to to suffer for his name's sake, as Chris, Scripture calls us to, indicative, too, of this notion of kind of being uh, uh, the church that's what's the old saying 10 miles wide and an inch deep right no no absolutely absolutely i mean again i don't think that we should necessarily seek out persecution but i mean i think that there are ways that our desires for comfort uh uh kind of compromises our willingness to to speak the truth in in difficult situations uh whether that's in the public square or in our congregations um and i think that has that has uh, ramifications 
Our conversation today with Chris Smith. He is co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. If you are someone who is a uh, student of uh, everything that is fast and rapid and you wish to overemphasize a, a quality, quantity rather over quality, this is probably not a book for you. If, on the other hand, you're somebody who would rather not go quicker in your relationship with God but go deeper, then this indeed can be a book that can be a tremendous eye-opener not only for your own relationship with Christ, but at the family level and at the community level. The book again, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus, newly published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area, not in the rapid church growth section, though, I might add. (laughs) And of course, on Amazon.com. And our thanks to co-author Chris Smith for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You go to the mall sometimes or maybe shopping, you watch a parent not parenting and the child's running amok throughout the stores, pulling things off the shelves, the whole bit. And you think to yourself, how come somebody doesn't teach that parent how to parent or hold them responsible for their child? There ought to be a law. Well, apparently in Dallas there is one, though it has nothing to do with encouraging parents to parent. In fact, it seemingly has just the opposite effect. You might have heard of this case of a parent whose daughter was engaged in, at the age of 12, no surprise there, engaged in some inappropriate chatting on the cell phone. Happens all the time, right? So dad did what most thinking, caring parents would do. And that is, he said to his daughter, taught you not to talk like that. I'm taking your cell phone away. The police were called. And the back end of the story is that he ended up spending a night in jail, had to pay $1,500 in bail, and it went to a jury trial. The father being accused of stealing his daughter's telephone. I guess I would I would be in a lot of trouble as a parent because in my house it would be you live underneath my roof, I pay for your bills, and until the age of majority, my rules go. And if you don't behave appropriately, the cell phone will be taken away. Can anybody tell me right now listening that's over the age of 18 who doesn't remember a time when mom or dad said when you were 16 or something years old, you acted up, you misbehaved, you didn't do your chores, whatever, and the car keys were taken away from you for the weekend? Happened to me a bunch of times. I guess I should have called the police on my dad and said, hey, he stole my car. Let's try to see if we can't make sense out of what seems to make no sense at all. Dr. Greg Jantz joins us. He's a best-selling author of more than 25 books. He is founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources and the author of a new book that probably should be in the hands of every parent that has a child that's 18 or younger. It's called Hooked, The Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. And Dr. Jantz, thanks so much for making some time out of your busy schedule to join us tonight. Is there something about this story I'm missing? I mean, really, this man was arrested for taking his daughter's cell phone because she was texting somebody in a Appropriately, there's got to be a backstory. Please tell. Oh, me. there's got to be. But what is it? It's it's uh, unbelievable, isn't it? Just simply unbelievable. And uh, the role of there's several things that are confused here is uh, we've really uh, probably uncovered quite the conflict that was going on prior to taking the cell phone away. Something else was going on. And the other piece is uh, the role of technology with our young people and what's happening. 
Let's talk about a couple of things. First, as a bit of background, and this will immediately, I think, for most parents listening, say, aha, uh, the, the, the parents of this child are separated. Maybe they were never married. From what I've read, it doesn't appear as if there was ever any wedlock involved. So the daughter lives with mom but comes and visits dad. It was the daughter who had the telephone given to her by mom. Dad took it away when he saw that she was engaged in some inappropriate texting. And so part of this just seems to be a, a bit of a, a battle between between parents. It is, and of course the kids are caught in the middle of it. Um, and we know, too, that uh, there could be some different values as it relates to what's acceptable, even in, in text messaging. And uh, is that really private information? If you supply the cell phone and you have a kid who's under 18 and they're texting, is that private information? Let's talk about this because I've seen I've seen several postings on the web that seem to suggest that there's more than one individual out there that seems to be of the opinion that you know this child has her her rights and after all it's an invasion of privacy this that and the other thing and I'm thinking to myself really in in 2016 knowing the kind of dangers that lurk out there on the internet behind uh, social media sites everything from uh, you know pedophiles to uh, will you just about name it, uh, even these days we're seeing kids kidnapped and, and, and being brought into the sex trade as sex slaves, what what thinking logical parent would say, oh yeah, my daughter at the age of 12 has a quote-unquote, I mean, if you want to help give her a little sense of privacy in terms of, you know, don't, don't just walk through the bedroom door without knocking first, that I get. But a child that has a right to privacy on an electronic device under the age of 18, I, what is it that I'm missing here? Well, you know, we're back to um, really, are we working on protecting our kids? Um, you know, what we do in our home, and I have two boys, is, um, you know, we know passwords. You share your password, and um, the phone or the smart device goes uh, actually in a charger in mom and dad's closet at a certain time in the evening, or you don't have it the next day. Uh, we talk about things that are, um, you know, downloading an apps. We make it a an open discussion. We know that the average age to exposure to pornography on the Internet now is, is age 10, 10 years old. So we're seeing boys 14, 15, 16 really have developed what fits more in the category of sexual addiction. I just read a story, Dr. Jantz, probably over the weekend, about a mother who had her young son, a 10-year-old boy, had his Facebook account linked to her. So anytime there was a like or a message sent, she saw what was being communicated. Yeah. To discover that he was suddenly communicating with a 30-year-old man who wanted to make arrangements to meet the boy. There was yeah. apparently some graphic exchange of conversation. The mother happened to see this, immediately intervened, turned the device over to police, who then, posing as this perp, uh, actually set up a meeting. The guy showed up and he got arrested. I mean, those kinds of dangers. Are there parents that are so naive out there that they don't realize that if they don't control these devices pretty strictly, like in the case of this father here, that the kind of risk that they are exposing their children to is the equivalent of saying, hey, let me give you 10 bucks and send you into the seediest part of town for the evening and, you know, come home by 10. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Technology, and if you have kids that have been born in the 90s, they're part of the I generation. It's the first tech, uh, generation to be tethered to technology. 
and there's an underground world, and they're faster and smarter than we are, and every day there's a new app, and kids move in herds, you know, Facebook is old news, we're off to uh, other things, and um, now I could buy an app and put it on my smartphone that looks like a calculator, but it's really a disguised communication tool. Um, we have instant live uh, videoing now, and there's some apps that, like this that the parents ought to really be concerned about. So we've got to involve ourselves into the lives of our kids, uh, really from a protection point of view. And again, as, as we're suggesting, this is not necessarily because you're trying to snoop on them or, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an environment where you demonstrate out the gate that you don't trust them. But the level of vulnerability out there is, is so incredible. In fact, we'll, we'll pose this question for Dr. Jans and have an answer when we come back after a timeout. When I grew up, granted that was back when the Stone Age was here and there was, you know, no electric light or running water yet, uh, my father insisted that if I was going out for an evening or hanging out with neighborhood kids after a certain time of the day, he wanted to know where I was going to be, what parent was at that home, a telephone number to call in case of an emergency, and he insisted upon knowing the parents of the children that I associated with. He said it was just good parenting. That was just to protect me from what might be lurking in the neighborhood. Imagine today where with the Internet, it's the whole planet that we need to be concerned about. So what of that? We'll talk about that when we come back to more of the conversation. Do you believe that your child's so-called right to privacy onto Trump, your responsibility to protect your son or daughter? If you were the parent in this Dallas case, 12-year-old daughter inappropriately texting with someone, broken the rules, you say, okay, you break the rules, I'm taking the cell phone away. Is that an appropriate parental response? What about the city of Dallas? Really? They don't have enough crime problems down there that they go and arrest this guy and put him in the Huskow overnight? This ends up going to a jury trial all over the question of the father being charged with stealing his daughter's cell phone because he was disciplining her for inappropriate behavior in texting on said cell phone. I mean, at, at what point do our child's rights end and our responsibility as parents begin? Dr. Greg Jantz, he is best-selling author and founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. We're talking about the shocking case out of Dallas. Fortunately, the judge said, there's no evidence here. Get this thing out of my courtroom. But it, it, it begs the question, should parents not take full responsibility for parenting their children? And since when should the police department, the government, get involved in a case like this? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So split parents here. Daughter primarily lives with mom, visiting dad. Dad sees daughter engaged in some inappropriate texting. Rules of the house are you can't behave like that. Says the daughter, I'm confiscating, confiscating your telephone. The 12-year-old pulls a typical 12-year-old conniption fit. Goes tattling to mommy, who apparently decides this is a great way to get back at daddy, and then through the police demands that the telephone be returned, otherwise it's considered stolen property. Now, that's that's the lay of the land. What's your reaction? Let's go to San Jose and say good evening to Elaine. Elaine, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Greg Jans on this topic. Good evening. Um, yes, I, it's more of a question, comment type thing. I was listening to Kevin uh, Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman, oh, yes. psychologist, uh -huh. 
And he was making the point that uh, in this very exact uh, topic of cell phones, that parents don't realize that the phone belongs to them because they are the one that paid for it. So therefore, if a child abuses the uh, rules and guidelines of the telephone, the, the cell phone, then the parent has every right to take it away from the child. Now, in this particular case, I think because of the way our culture is going, we seem to get things confused as to what and who has a right. And you get the right lawyer out there, and they'll sue for the most ridiculous things, as in this case, I do believe. Um, and I'm just glad that the um, judge threw it out. Um, but it, it, the fact that it got that far was kind of interesting to me. But I think you're right on when you say that it, uh, it was appeared that the mom was trying to get back at her ex. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's, really... that, that, that's certainly, I think, a big uh, component here, Elaine. And the other thing that I find of, of, of concern, and Elaine kind of alludes to this, Dr. Jans, and that is the notion that, you know, we're in a day and an age when some of the child psychologists out there say, now, don't don't spank or paddle a child because that's considered uh-huh. to be abusive. So right. then what tools are left to a parent to try and discipline a child in an appropriate fashion if, you, if, if taking away their privileges is abusive and spanking them is considered child abuse and you can't take away the cell phone because now you're stealing property why do we call them children then why don't we just say that they're you know miniature adults that's right well good point you know and i think too another bigger picture is um what how do we handle a whole issue of technology with our parenting we know that um uh, there's some real dangers right now with kids and technology and how do we monitor this what do we do um and how do we uh, set up technology rules for our family and our household? And what's our values there? Um, how do we use it for good? So these are all important questions. You have a broken uh, family. Uh, this gets even more complicated because one parent may uh, be more involved than the other in uh, the whole technology realm. And so we, we send a lot of mis- messages. Are parents uh, underplaying the, the danger here? I alluded before the break to the notion that my father insisted on knowing who my playmates were, who their parents were. And by the way, if you're going to be over at so-and-so's house, I want a telephone number. I mean, was that overprotective for that era? I'm talking 40 years ago. And if that was overprotective for them, considering what's lurking on the other side of a cell phone or the Internet these days, my goodness. That's right. So what we do know is that uh, that was probably not overprotective. That showed love and care and protection. And right now, there's a whole other level, of invisible level of communication, connection uh, that's happening via uh, the Internet and online activity that parents uh, probably, for the most part, I'm always amazed how many parents really um, aren't, aren't privy to how much is actually going on. You know, how many kids have received a sex texting? How many kids have had bully behavior online? So I, I just want to open up the awareness. I want to keep this so kids don't feel ashamed and they can talk about it. And, you know, developmentally, um, uh, developmental stages, the research has shown us that overstimulating the brain uh, with nonstop high-intensity blue screen activity um, really over time uh, can create what we call a craving brain. That brain wants more and more stimuli. We know boys are more prone to this. And it can really set you up to have an addictive type brain and craving more and more. 
So in addition to some of the obvious things like uh, pedophiles trying to make connection with children, things of this sort, uh, there, there's this whole layer of, of exposing them. And, and I guess it's true then that there, there, there are levels of maturity which our children need to be prepared to what they're exposed to. That isn't to say that eventually they're not going to run into this. I mean, uh, how many of us listening right now have innocently sat down to the computer and, and, and Googled a, a cooking recipe and all of a sudden, my goodness, got hit with porn? Jarella's raising his hand. It happens all okay. the time. Time. And, yeah. and yet to understand, like this one recent uh, junior high school, half of the student body got disciplined because they were swapping uh, naked photos of each other. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, yep. it, is, it is a slippery soap. And, and does it say to parents like Elaine and others out there, uh, you need to take time to get educated and realize that there's a lot more going on and capable of taking place in the digital realm than most of us are really uh, aware of? There's a lot more going on, isn't there, than what we're aware of. Uh, we do something called a digital dinner one night a week. It's okay to talk about anything related to technology. The kids can take charge, and we sit there and learn about things that they know about, so that it helps us. <laughs> so, and we also want to promote to have one day of technology detox, where you just set it all away and down, and you're not involved with it for a day, and you, you learn how to do a board game, that's a board game, not a boring game, and you begin to do things that you wouldn't normally have done. You're not talking like people actually sitting and conversing with each other face-to-face, are you? Well, I, I knew that I had a problem in my home some time ago, and my two boys were at the dinner table texting back and forth under the table. To each other. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we sure appreciate the time tonight. Thank you also, Elaine, for your input. And uh, let me mention, by the way, that Dr. Jantz's book, Hooked, the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing, um, is uh, available. And uh, can you get it through your website as well, Dr. Jantz? Visit us at aplaceofhope.com, yes. Excellent. Good good resource for more information and, of course, to get a copy of the book. And, again, you know, this this is a topic that I realize for any of us over the age of Twenty. Uh, uh, we're, we're still playing catch up, and what comes naturally to the kids is a big learning curve for all of us. But be aware of the pitfalls and the dangers that are out there. This case certainly out of Dallas is at the extreme, and yet demonstrative of the fact that this parent was simply doing their job to protect their daughter because uncontrolled, unfettered, uh, this can be a very dangerous um manipulative tool in the hands of the wrong people and the kind of stuff that your kids can be exposed to can be very dangerous i'm not suggesting that it's not great technology we all enjoy it life has gotten a lot easier at many levels a lot more complicated at many others but uh, it needs to be a case where parent you need to be actively engaged and aware and i like what dr jan suggests how about a disconnect it turn it off evening for the entire family Dad's not responding to emails from work. Mom is not texting, you know, friend down the street who wants a copy of a recipe or trying to coordinate, you know, the, 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 the you know, who's taking who the, to soccer practice next Saturday. The kids are not texting each other, sitting right across the table from each other and texting each other. Can you believe it? How about just good old-fashioned face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation? Remember how that goes? You say something and I listen, then I say something when you listen and then we repeat? Fascinating thought, isn't it? wonder how that goes. All right. Thanks so much to Dr. Greg Jantz. Again, the book, Hooked the Pitfalls of Media, Technology, and Social Marketing. You can get it on his website at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.